Hello, and welcome to the International Sonography Podcast, the podcast all about the occupation of diagnostic medical ultrasound all over the globe. I'm your host, Jamie Fujikawa. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the International Sonography Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Fujikawa, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Lorinda Andrist. Today, Lorinda and I get to welcome Dr. David Abel, who's a perinatologist, among many other titles that he has. Currently, Dr. Abel is the assistant clinical professor and attending perinatologist in the Division of Maternal Fetal Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, Fresno branch. I was first introduced to David when he was doing a lecture on fetal echocardiography at an SDMS conference. After meeting with him and getting to know more about him, I knew we had to have him on the podcast. He's charismatic and he has a beautiful perspective on things and on life. And I think it's important to hear uh, what he's been through and what his hopes for the future are and how he views the world of perinatology and sonography as they merge together. So, uh, David, thank you so much for being here. I think we're just going to jump right in today and start to get to know a little bit more about you and your background. So, David, if you can tell us, first of all, where you grew up and how you began your journey to becoming a maternal fetal medicine physician. Sure. Um, well, I grew up uh, in New York City, uh, specifically uh, in Brooklyn. Um, interestingly, I was very interested in acting. I went to Cornell for acting uh, in the summer, and that's really what I wanted to do. But um, my dad wasn't too thrilled about going the acting route. Um so that really wasn't an option. Um, starting in uh, 10th grade, um, I volunteered um, at a local inner city hospital, uh, specifically Coney Island Hospital, which is a very inner city um, hospital that has or had a very rigorous volunteer program. Um, and they needed all the help they can get. Yeah. Uh, so as a volunteer, uh, we got the opportunity to do some pretty cool things for a high school student, at least. Um, but we had to work our way up. So we all started as ward clerks. Um, and then we would become a volunteer nurse assistant where we would learn to make hospital beds and learn to be very meticulous about that process. I mean, who knew, like, the details about making a hospital corner on a bed sheet. Seriously. Well, I can totally understand because that is something I learned myself as a volunteer. <laughs> right. Um, uh, I always tell this to my wife, who was a, a nurse for 20 years um, as well. Then we could actually move to perform like EKGs by ourselves. Sure. Oh. Um, and then work in the recovery room. Uh, so that was a, a pretty uh, cool experience that I would say influenced my journey at least to go to medical school. So you're a New Yorker through and through. Yes. I used to be a taxi driver before medical school. It was a nice way to make money. I actually used to be a limousine driver, and then I was a foot messenger at the World Trade Center. Oh, my goodness. So that was crazy. So, yeah, I actually lost some people, too. Yeah, my brother was actually uh, going into the city when the towers were burning. And I used to grow up going into the city to see my grandparents every week right when the World Trade Center uh, was getting built. So we'd watch it get bigger and bigger and bigger over a period of uh, a long time. And then who knew when I was like uh, 19 or 20, I was delivering packages. I would go to one tower, come down the elevator and go up to the other tower and stuff. So, uh, yeah. Absolutely. Surreal experience from the beginning to the coming down. Wow. So I'm going to back up a little bit because uh, from where you grew up to going to medical school, I noticed you majored in your undergraduate in childhood development. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So was that because you had a different avenue you were going to go down or did you have that as your overall uh, plan to begin with as far sure. as jumping from that to medical school? Right. Um, you know, when I entered college, um, uh, I sort of knew I wanted to be pre-med and my goal was to get into medical school, I think, when I entered college. So by that point, I think that I knew that I wanted to go to medical school. But I really didn't want to major in a hard science, such as biology or chemistry, in part because I knew that I was going to get all of that in medical school. And I wanted to take advantage of the liberal arts education that my dad was so kindly paying for me. Uh, uh, um, And I went to college at Tufts, which happened to have um, outside of Boston, which happened to have a really good child development um, uh, program. 
And I just took an introductory class. I'd always been interested in that and no attention to major it or anything. And oh my God, was I hooked. Um, that professor was Marianne Wolf. She's still there. She's very big in the field of language development. And she was definitely one of my most memorable teachers. You know, we took classes like emotional and intellectual development of the child, um, developmental crises, uh, child art. And then I even did research with child of divorce as well. So I decided to major in child development after just getting so hooked on it, especially with that professor that I just mentioned, who was just absolutely um, uh, incredible. So that sort of was my journey to child development. Uh, and I'm really glad that I did that. And I'm glad that I didn't major in a hard science. I think that was a really good decision for me. Um, in retrospect, I probably also would have liked history since I love history, would have liked to have done that as well. But I sort of was a, a minor um, in Russian. So not Russian language so much. And my background is Russian. I, my yeah. grandparents, my grandparents are from Russia and came over and, you know, escaped the Holocaust and all of that stuff, which if you're from New York and you're Jewish, I think that's kind of a, a, a common theme. They escaped the czar, actually. So that was a little bit before that. And so I, I would do Russian history, Russian film. So I kind of mitered in that too. So again, taking is the basic and minimal pre-med requirements to get me into medical school like focusing on other stuff because I wouldn't really get the chance to, to do it again was what I did. I think it was a really good decision for me. I went to my reunion for the department. It's called the Elliott Pearson School of Child Development. I went to the 25th reunion five years ago in Boston. It was, it was really a lot of fun. So. What was it about that professor that just kind of lit that fire in you? And is oh, oh, I could, Dr. Wolf had an incredible way of teaching that I had never seen before. She basically would start every lecture with a story and almost like she was acting in a play to illustrate a point. And half of the lecture would be you watching her immerse herself in a role of another person. And this was her way of illustrating um, various concepts. So it was um, very um, non-didactic. Yeah. So it wasn't boring. It was yeah. just, you would really look forward to every uh, uh, lecture. Um, I wound up taking another class with her that was a little bit more hard science with um, uh, pathophysiology um, of huh. brain development. Um, that was like a year and a half later as part of my major. But again, her teaching style was um, incredible. And I have to admit, I think that I use a bit of that when I can uh in uh my lectures sometimes uh is a way to engage people because I, man some yeah. of these lectures could be so boring i know and i was just going to ask you but did you take some of her style and kind of see that i want to intrigue people like that at the beginning of a talk and i did jamie um and i think that the combination of taking some of those things that i first saw through her and also my introduction or i should say my strong interest in acting was one of my main motivations for wanting to speak and why I like to speak so much. You know, as I said, um, my dad was never going to let me go into acting. It was, it was kind of a little bit like, sure, you can go into acting. I'll disown you, but you can go into acting. A little bit like that. <laughs> I wish no I was pressure, No pressure, David. No pressure. Uh, but he, uh, he didn't really pressure me to go into medical school. It was sort of just assumed. Sure. I hung out with a bunch of friends. Half of them were like heads of departments. And uh, in medicine and the other half were like lawyers. So it was just that way. Yeah. Um, and we were all pretty competitive. We all went to public high school, not a public, not a private high school. And I'm a big fan of public education. Yeah. Uh, but uh, acting uh, it is a way of expressing yourself. And when I give lectures, it is my way to satisfy that need to act. What I mean by that is not being phony. No. But acting is a way to perform. And when you're giving a lecture, and particularly when when folks are paying for it, they deserve their money's worth. And giving them their money's worth by entertaining them and educating them is a challenge that I love. Absolutely. So I would say that that interest in acting is definitely something that motivated me to want to speak. I'm the type of person that I have no issue of speaking in front of 300 people. Sure. I have no issue at all. Yeah. Um, whether it's 20 or 50 or 100 or 200. 
and acting is uh, has helped me to be able to be um, the best teacher I can when I'm giving lectures. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's awesome. I love it how you still snuck the arts in there. Like, I mean, and even though you covered it with the with the doctorate, but yeah, right. you seem to have this really tight connection with sonography. I know you are a perinatal medicine physician, and and those two things kind of go hand in hand, but what were the specific circumstances that kind of facilitated further involvement in the field? Well, I started my maternal fetal medicine fellowship. You know, I went to Duke, which was just a great experience. And my son was born in my first year fellowship in room 5711, uh, um, which might've been the highlight of my fellowship, but still, you know, I never really expected to get into the fetal side of things like I did, you know, obviously it's maternal fetal medicine and it's a combination of both. Mm-hmm. But I didn't have that much exposure in residency to ultrasound. But when I was at Duke, there were a couple of mentors, uh, James Bowie and Barbara Hertzberg in particular, that were great teachers. Uh, and another person, Martha Decker, who also delivered my baby, mm-hmm. um, and who taught me amniocentesis. And through them, I really gained a strong interest in ultrasound. The idea uh, of prenatal diagnosis when you see a constellation of findings on ultrasound and it's a puzzle right and sometimes it's relatively easy now that i have some experience to know sure i see uh holoprosencephaly and emphalocele and iugr and this most likely is going to be trisomy 13 sure those are the relatively easy cases but what's harder is when everything doesn't fit and often you don't get a diagnosis still and that's uh, frustrating, especially when patients um, don't want invasive testing or chromosomal microarray or what have you. But that challenge of prenatal diagnosis and putting uh, those findings together really um, got me. And I think just my interest in ultrasound took off. I would also say that in my fellowship, we were given a, 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 um, a good amount of autonomy. So we actually kind of ran the perinatal diagnostic center by the time we were third year fellows, which in talking with my uh, fellowship director at the time, I talked to him a few weeks ago when we met at Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine, all the folks at Duke met for a reunion. He says that that doesn't happen anymore. Um, fellows are, have their hand held a little bit more. Um, but having that freedom and that autonomy um, was good. I had also been in practice for four years prior mm-hmm. to entering the fellowship. I did water births in Vermont. Oh. I was I was chief of OBGYN of a very small hospital in Vermont, uh, worked for Planned Parenthood, um, and taught at the University of Vermont. Really, really small place, which is where I met my now wife uh, as well. And uh, having that experience, um, particularly in a, in a small hospital like that, um, was really good. And uh, then having that autonomy and being able to handle it okay when I was in fellowship. Yeah, A lot of people go straight through, Jamie, but for me, uh, taking a few years off and then going back into fellowship was, was a really good idea. How has the progression of ultrasound technology changed the interactions that you can have with your patients and their decision-making capabilities? So let me give you an example. When I diagnose a congenital anomaly, okay, I mean, in most cases, I prefer to show the patient during the live scan what it is I'm actually talking about. This is not always easy, especially when you're showing them pretty nasty stuff. And once in a while, you'll have a patient that just is so upset, denial, many emotions, which of course is very normal, but I still will point to them on the ultrasound during live scanning, what I'm actually seeing. Um, And by doing this, I feel like I am giving them the information and and that empowers them because they need to have the most information, the the best and most information possible, especially when I'm talking to them about various serious things, like even an option of termination of pregnancy, if that's something they were considering, right? Um, uh, With with better machines now um, that enhance clarity, I think patients get an even better sense of of what is going on, uh, and it makes our interactions, you know, my interaction and my sonographer's interaction with the patient that much more productive because they can easily tell uh, because technology is better what I'm talking about. Um, In addition, I would say, uh, you know, 3D ultrasound, three-dimensional ultrasound, particularly for facial anomalies, 
has really made a difference. Um, a, it helps us to confirm things we see on, on 2D, but um, the more quote unquote human look that you get with, you know, three dimensional scanning, I think is important because it's enhanced uh, bonding between mom um, and baby. Uh, you know, Dolores Pretorius, yeah. uh, right? She's done a lot of work of that, you know, at UC San Diego, particularly looking at, you know, 3D facial anomalies and even some worse anomalies, not just like a bad median cleft or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it helps patients, it helps women when they see their baby and it's not so horrible because they imagine it looking pretty horrible. And it's very hard to see that on a 2D. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say that 3D also has really helped with that. And I don't do 3D a lot. Um, I try to give patients 3D pictures anytime I could. Even during the NT scan, I give them 3D pictures. Absolutely. So, so we do that even during the NT scan. And I think that they like that. We print it out on just regular paper. Uh, you know, um, you know, I work in an underserved area, so yeah. I'm having any kind of pictures, I think is really nice. So yeah, it is always nice. Okay. Well, you have uh, certainly provided a good transition. So you told us about your interaction between yourself and your patients. What about your interaction with your sonographers? Is it a hierarchy or is it more you're a team approach, uh, debating, what you see and coming out with the final diagnosis or proposed diagnosis when we were like, when we were talking about the constellation of findings that say, Oh, well, it's probably trisomy 13. I think this is a fantastic question and a very important one to me. It is absolutely not a hierarchy, quite the opposite. Uh, we're definitely a team and by no means am I more important than my sonographers in some ways. I, I mean, I certainly can't do that without them. And I have two of them. We run two rooms. We do about 28 scans a day. So we do about 14 uh, each per, and I do about, um, you know, 10 to 15 consults a day. So when I see Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, we do uh, about 75 to 80 scans in those three days. And I do about 40 consults in those three days. Wow. So it's really busy. The volume is huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also don't mind my sonographers pointing out certain things on the screen. Um, and I trust them. Um, there's certainly differences of opinion. Certain sonographers are not allowed to say anything. Um, I don't believe in that. For me, the idea of a sonographer not talking to a patient and being completely silent during a scan may only serve to heighten a patient's anxiety, especially when there's no concern whatsoever. So if my sonographer said, yeah, things were looking good. And, or at the end of the scan, they said, you know, I'm going to bring Dr. Abel in. He's going to talk to you more because I see every patient, every single patient. I don't scan every single patient because we're just too busy, but I try to. And especially if I'm teaching like, Hey, I want to show you something on this sagittal view of, uh, of the, of the CNS. Cause I'm into a lot of CNS lately with sagittal and coronal views, you sure. know, anything non-axial. Mm-hmm. Then I'll show my sonog- my sonographer something, or or they'll ask me something, or hey, show me this, or hey, this is a great patient. Let's try to get a ductus venosus and transverse instead of long. All those kinds of things, mm-hmm. and I'm very open to doing that. And if the patient has, the patients usually don't mind. And if it backs up our schedule a few minutes more, I think that it's absolutely worth it for that teaching. But I'm completely fine at the end of the scan if the patient says, "Hey, things look great." Doctor Abel is going to talk to you more about that. Conversely, if there's something wrong, usually the, the, the sonographers are not comfortable, even though they may know what's wrong, saying something. Mm-hmm. I have no problems at all because of, I think, the, the trust and the uh, non-hierarchical relationship that we have for my sonographers to say to the patient, there are some concerns, and Dr. Abel's going to talk to you more about that. So certainly they're not getting into more detail. But I'm also fine with them saying something. Sure. Um, as opposed to, well, I can't say anything right now, and Dr. Abel will talk to you. I want to emphasize that I think that it is very important as this physician to make sure that your sonographers feel valued. And they're not just the technician. Certainly they are, and I can't do that without them. But what I mean valued, both in their efforts – 
and their opinions. Um, I'm always watching out for repetitive motion injury. We have, like I'm sure you guys do as well, but particularly in my population, I would say half of our patients will have a BMI greater than 40. Sure. Half. And it's the rare patient that has the BMI that's under 30. Let me give you an example of the the interaction, I think, with the sonographer that I think is something that's relatively common. Um, You know, I do fetal echo cardiography, and I like it a lot. And um, this happened last week. Um, My sonographer felt like there was something wrong with the heart, which already um, she was feeling a little bit bad because she didn't know exactly what it was. Mm -hmm. And I said to her, first of all, that is not an expectation. You are doing the most important thing by thinking that something is wrong. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing is I think is they need um, good feedback. I think that particularly in medicine, sometimes we're all about negative feedback and we don't focus that much on positive feedback. And I tried to give my sonographers positive feedback. Uh, she was all down on herself because she didn't know what it was and she asked me for help and she saw it maybe as a weakness and, you know, we had to talk about that. And I said, hey, you know, I think it might be reasonable for you to kind of think about this a different way. I am very glad that you found out uh, that there was something wrong. And then we went in together and I helped her and I asked her her opinion as well. Now, I'll do this in front of the patient. And I say to the patient ahead of time, hey, I'm going to be talking um, with my sonographer right now, sometimes some of the things that we see aren't so easy to diagnose. And often the diagnosis, as you know, gets changed even postnatally. Um, In this case, it was a a small uh, uh, right ventricle with a very dysplastic tricuspid valve. And we thought it was tricuspid atresia with with a VSD and a small RV. And because I don't have because my volume is so high, I cannot spend an hour on an echo the way I would like to. Yeah. So we have someone who's amazing. I don't know if you've heard of her, Joy Guthrie. Uh, uh, maybe. Like, <laughs> yeah. Hello. So I get to send my patients to Joy, which is amazing. Yeah. And I'll or call her up. Um, and Joy said that you were right on with your diagnosis, which was really cool. But not cool because, oh, I got it right. That's not my point. My point is, is that I then talked to my sonographer about that and said, hey, we went in together and with your help and especially initially you figuring out that something was wrong. Yeah. We helped to, to even get a, a sort of right diagnosis, which was, which was pretty cool. And obviously then I go into another room and talk to the patient more. Um, so I hope that gives you a sense of the um, team approach and how um, I consider my relationships or how I characterize my relationships rather with my sonographers. I've really appreciated our physicians not only um, giving us the respect and the confidence of of knowing that we know what we're looking at, but also being able to sit down and kind of look at differentials together and talk about why it would be this, why it's not, what else can we look for, you know, those kind of things. Because it's it's a mentorship that we consider very valuable, and we just, I just, I love it that you appreciate that. Well, you've had quite a diverse uh career with being an author, notably, as well as a lecturer, um, obviously physician side. Of the things that you have done, what do you really believe is your favorite? I can see a little bit of that acting that you referred to. It's obviously <laughs> all in no. as well. <laughs> I think, Lorena, um, I would say the acting is definitely a big part of it. It's my chance to um, uh, do something in a way where I could both entertain, like I said, and educate. Um, I really enjoy the the challenge of making material that may seem very boring, interesting. And that could be either with speaking or even in writing, but particularly with speaking. Uh, because some stuff that even, you know, we deal with is kind of dry. Um, and whether it's my animation, walking around the room, not just things like, uh, you know, showing some cool animation and making the, the pictures on the PowerPoint look good, which I also think is important, again. Yeah. Um, but I've gotten some nice feedback from, from that, which I think has is, um, is, uh, really been rewarding for me. So, you know, you've asked me, you know, what's been one of the most rewarding endeavors is when you get that positive feedback um, about teaching um, you know, I won a teaching award last year from my residents, or when you go to these conferences and they have to evaluate you 
and the vast majority say, you know, that it was really, really good. I mean, that's certainly a great feeling. It means that um, it was uh, worthwhile. And that's the, the whole purpose of that is to make it worthwhile for them. Obviously, you know that I have a passion for education and teaching, yeah. um, whether it's stenographers, medical students, you know, maternal female medicine fellows, or, or just giving lectures to other, other women's health providers. Um, you know, it's all good. It's all rewarding. You know, I also am part of a program called Doctors Academy, mm-hmm. which I go into the junior high schools and high schools oh. in very, very rural areas. And I talk to them. Um, the program really is designed to try to um, get folks to go into the health professions and then come back because there's a huge shortage of healthcare professionals in the San Joaquin Valley. The San Joaquin Valley in particular, that's what we're talking about. Latino students who um, will be the first um, uh people to go to college in their family and it doesn't have to be being a doctor i talk to them about you know my team and sonographer and then we talk about maternal mortality understanding about what it's like in sub-saharan africa and risk of you dying and then uh, we get into you know showing you know cool pictures we talk about amniotic fluid being urine all the kids go ooh, and all of that so that is uh, one other um, aspect that I didn't mention in terms of what gives me satisfaction and it's rewarding is um, is talking to to those kids as well too. And that's where I think my child development comes into play a little bit really? in, in talking to that audience. So yeah. it's a it's a great program um, that's in the you know in the San Joaquin Valley um, in a few very we're talking towns of like five to ten thousand people. Yeah. Um, at most, um, very rural, very, very poor. And probably very uh, short-sighted aspirations for what they can do. Yes. Yes. So, you know, little opportunities, but for these kids, you know, a lot of them wind up going to, you know, Fresno state, um, university of California, Merced, and they get into these certain programs through UCSF or, uh, Davis, UC Davis. And then before you know it, they're going to medical school or DO school or, trying to be a sonographer or an x-ray technician or whatever it is. But the issue is that we need them to come back um, yeah. because there's such a shortage of healthcare providers. Do you know that a woman um, in the, a pregnant woman in the San Joaquin Valley um, has like a three to four times higher chance of dying in childbirth than if she's not living in the San Joaquin Valley? Because all of the risk factors that kind of get missed or the healthcare available in those hospitals? Or what? Yeah, it's, it's very complicated because it gets into a much bigger issue of like, why is the United States out of all developed countries in the world have the highest maternal mortality that continues to go up despite other countries going down? I mean, ours is nothing like Sierra Leone, which is the worst in the world, but yeah. our maternal mortality is six times worse than Finland's. And yeah. that gets into lots of issues, access to care, trust, um, genetics to poverty. Not everyone has health care, And, you know, we certainly can get into a lot of other issues with, that I believe, you know, healthcare is a, a right, not a privilege. Yeah. Um, uh, I work um, at a place where we send a van out to pick people up to bring them to me because a lot of them don't have cars. Mm. So even that is a limiting thing, and that's pretty cool that we do that. So equal uh, access. I mean, that's so, yeah. Yeah. So it's an it's access as well, and you probably have heard this too. In rural areas, hospitals are closing. People don't have access um, to many things. Yeah. Um, and it's a huge problem. And there's so much right now, both in the lay press and in journals about maternal mortality. It is everywhere. I'm going to be giving a lecture on maternal cardiac disease at ACOG. And maternal cardiac disease is now the number one reason for maternal mortality in the United States. Obviously, in the world, it's usually hemorrhage and thromboembolism and hypertensive disorders. Uh, but in the United States, maternal cardiac disease is now number one. It's congenital repair. It's a combination, Jamie, of both congenital, particularly ones that were unrepaired, sure. and, acqui- and acquired. Acquired is probably more in terms of actual deaths, but both is a big issue. And that's what I talk about in that talk. 15.5% from the latest data um, of all maternal deaths are due to cardiovascular disease, which has really changed. Wow. So there's such a big deal now. This is a big push for clinicians everywhere to be um, aware of that. There's a really good article in the American Journal, the Gray Journal, this month on a really good flow sheet for general OBGYNs about patients with suspected um, uh, maternal cardiac disease. So, yeah. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah. Staggering figures, but really cool. Yeah. 
Well, from the academic perspective, where do you see the field of maternal fetal medicine kind of in the next decade? Conferences with lectures and these traveling to conferences, is that still going to happen? Are they going to turn into more video-based conferences where everybody can join in all over the world and be on the same platform? What do you see happening in that dynamic? Let me address the, the, that part of your question first. I have been speaking at ACOG now for 12 or 13 years. Mm-hmm. I've been going to the ACOG meeting since the first time I went to a meeting was in 1995 when I was a third-year resident. Mm-hmm. Attendance at these meetings used to be ten to 15,000 people. Now attendance at these meetings is three to 4,000. Wow. Uh, and it's still big, a big meeting, but many reasons for that. Costs, people um, can't get off work, so time, cost. And, and obviously, as you can imagine, there's lots of other forms for which people can get education much easier without having to, to leave their home, right? So I think that these meetings will still be, will still continue where there is, um, where there's value in actually talking to people face-to-face. Sure. So I still think that will be important. And I certainly value that. Talking mm-hmm. to people face-to-face um, networking, hearing what other people have to say. I also give a lecture on opioid use disorders in pregnancy, obviously a huge topic. And the ability to actually hear what other people have to say when you're gathered at a lunch table of 12 people is something that you might not get when you're doing it like uh, from an online course or something like that. So I do think those are going to continue. Um, but I think that um, telehealth and teleconferencing, which is already... Um, uh, starting to um, increase is going to continue to increase uh, even more, particularly um, uh, with uh, trying to get information out to rural areas, particularly as small hospitals in rural areas start to close. So I think that's going to be a push even more, particularly when it comes to prenatal diagnosis. I think that there's going to come a time, and it does exist a little bit already, I believe, that where I might be watching a scan remotely um, somehow, maybe it'll be transmitted from that person scanning to my app on a phone, and I can see the picture really well and help decide uh, what we're dealing with. Does a patient need to go to a tertiary care centers, um, things like that. The other thing that I want to add is in terms of, you know, where do I see the field of maternal fetal medicine going is genetics is revolutionizing the field. So I don't know if you've heard of CRISPR. So CRISPR is huge. And basically, um, CRISPR is an incredibly hot technology developed at Berkeley that, to be very simple about it, is gene editing, where basically you can inject a virus and take a mutant gene that is disease-causing and essentially make it non-disease-causing. Crazy, right? Yeah, that's amazing. It's amazing, and it really is happening. And right now, we are pretty far away, but I just saw a recent article in Seminars in Perinatology about the use of CRISPR in prenatal diagnosis in perinatology, and I think it's coming. I don't know it's going to be in the next few years, but at some point, do I think down the road, probably not in our lifetime, are we going to be able to actually modify um, disease causing genes? I think that is going to be possible. Of course, there's going to be a whole bunch of ethics around a lot of it as well too. Um, I'm uh, highly considering going for my master's degree in health policy and law um, coming up too, another degree, right? But I love being a student. And especially as it revolves around genetics is going to yeah. be a huge thing with all of this technology. Preterm birth and maternal mortality are probably the biggest issues right now. Some people say that uh, the maternity mortality rate that's increasing so much is going to be hard to, to, to make a dent in uh, for many reasons, economics, but there's certainly being efforts to have hospitals have maternal mortality committees and obstetric bundles, they're called, where everything is protocoled. So for conditions like severe hemorrhage, uh, maternal cardiac arrest, all these things, that at least hospitals have a better way of dealing with this. And that's where OB simulation has come in. So that's been another thing. Um, I just went to another simulation at the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine, both for putting in like 
stents like thoracoamniotic amniotic shunts, even though I'm not doing that right now because I send them to UCSF. Sure. Um, but still, you know, just keeping current on that and being able to do that. And also simulations for maternal cardiac arrest and those kinds of things as well. And we do that with our residents as well. And I think that's going to continue uh, even more. Um, preterm birth is our huge problem. It's the biggest reason for prematurity and the costs associated with that and all the neonatal morbidity and mortality. And what's really hard about that is there's still so little we really know about the actual birth process and hence preterm birth as well. <laughs> with all the things we know, there's still so much we don't know. So that's one thing where I'm not sure what's going to happen with that. We use this progesterone is called prevention in people with a history, sure. but you know, the data on pro- even progesterone is not that great. Are you talking about injections and or progesterone? Injections. Yeah. For someone who's like asymptomatic that you happen to see a short cervix, but even when someone's getting injections for a history of preterm birth and you know, those injections are supposed to reduce the recurrent preterm delivery rate by 30%. But there's some data that also shows that that rate is not that good in terms sure. of reduction. So again, I think that there is a lot of work to be done in that field, probably all related to genetics. I mean, in many ways, everything goes back to genetics. And, yeah. you know, we all have yeah. things called single nucleotide polymorphisms. I mean, most people don't realize, Jamie, my genes and your genes, take a guess at how similar they are. 99.7%. Yeah. Okay. People don't realize that yeah. we're that similar. Yeah. And it's a little 0. 0.2, 0. 0.3, 0.4% difference in our genes if that is what makes you jamie and me david and sometimes it's like the difference between dig and dog the i and the o that's what the single nucleotide polymorphism is snips it's that term and that is a huge thing that i think is going to continue in our field um in terms of being able to diagnose um uh certain conditions finally with the human genome project we have um now doing whole exome screening. Exomes are the coding regions that code for proteins in our genome. They only account for about 1.5% of our entire genome. So most of our genome, 98.5%, does not code for proteins. So then you may ask, well, what does that mean? What do they do? Well, that's a whole other topic. But exomes and whole exome screening is basically looking at the entire genome. This is done very commonly now in pediatrics and now being done in prenatal diagnosis as well. For example, you have a constellation of findings. Maybe you did a microarray that was negative. Whole exome sequencing might be the next step. The problem is A, cost, and B, you get so much information and you get these things called VUS, variants of undetermined significance. In other words, you get these things that you don't know what to do with. You don't know how to counsel the patient. So that's where we still have work to do in this. But whole exome sequencing is a huge thing that I'm also very interested in. And again, like anything with genetics in particular, ethics comes into play. So I was just gonna say ethic. You yes. can't do genetics without ethics. That's right. Like, so it's gonna be very interesting how that comes into play. I know that I kind of went off there a little bit, but no, there are many things to think about. Yeah. When I talk to the medical students and that markers of annual lecture, we first talk about basics. Yeah. Like how many base pairs are in our human genome? What's a SNP? I mean really basic stuff too. Yes. So yeah. SNPs so are cool. So David, we've heard about your opportunities that you've had to go practice in some underserved areas. Um, would you mind telling us about those experiences and what made those unique? My Alaska experience was incredible. I was the perinatologist with one other perinatologist for the entire Native American population of Alaska for two years. So I worked at Alaska Native Medical Center and everyone came to see me. When I mean came to see me, I'm going to give you an example. Alaska is huge. If you stretch it out from the Aleutian Islands all the way to the southeast part, it's over half the size of the United States. There are islands that are a few hundred miles off the west coast of Alaska called the St. Lawrence Islands and the Pribilof Islands. We did all the prenatal care for those islands. So people came to see me from everywhere. You have to understand that there is no obstetricians except for one in Bethel, which is the largest city in western Alaska, which is 7,000 people. There are no obstetricians for Native American Americans in most of Alaska at all. Wow. Um, they can't have a C-section. They can't even be induced. That's uh, 
it's it, it, it's absolutely amazing. Um, I learned so much about the culture, the the different tribes, um, and it was very eye opening. Um, a little bit sad as well too. Um, you know, very high rates of heroin use in pregnancy mm-hmm. in Alaska, huge because um, heroin's pretty cheap. Um, fetal alcohol syndrome is huge. Tobacco use is huge. For certain conditions, I saw more in one year than most maternal fetal medicine folks would see um, in their lifetime. Um, one example was um, septo-optic dysplasia. Sure. Have you seen any cases of that? Yeah, we um, have. And now right. they're saying, oh, we can't diagnose it until MRI afterwards, but you know, the characteristics of SOD. Yeah, I, um, I, I personally disagree with that because yeah. um, a lot of times you'll see an absence of a cavum and then the differential diagnosis is mainly genesis of the corpus closer sure. or septo-optic dysplasia and they have that classic squared off appearance. Yes. Of the ones. And, you know, in this, these conditions, you know, uh, you know, pituitary insufficiency, neurocognitive um, issues, seizures, uh, and varying degrees of blindness because the optic, uh, 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 optic nerve atrophy. Sure. And I saw 10 in one year. Wow. wow. I was going to ask and, you, everywhere you go, it seems like in different parts of the world, there's a cluster of something. So what correct. was in Alaska? Now, now, can I answer why? No. I mean, you can argue, is it genetic? Sure, it probably is. One thing about the Native American population is you really can't study them, which mm-hmm. is a little bit of a shame, but it's just also a respect that they don't really um, allow you to study the, the, the culture. So um, I will say what's very interesting is that when the books talk about SOD, septoptic dysplasia, they talk about the uh, phenotype of vision problems is varies from minor color blindness to uh, complete blindness, but most people have very mild um, vision issues. Every one of those kids that I saw was completely blind. Oh. So, and it's it's very hard um, for them. And often you have to be very careful because in, right after birth, it's not the vision that's the emergent issue; it's the pituitary problems, and they need you know hormone support immediately after birth for electrolytes and things like that. Um, there's also these other, um, ultrasound conditions. One is called Kuskokwim syndrome. Kuskokwim is one of the rivers near the Yukon in the Western part of Alaska. And Mm -hmm. that's how it's got its name. And it's essentially an arthrogryposis type picture, you know, but it's a little bit different. Um, uh, maybe a little bit like penetral care. You've heard of that Mm -hmm. as well too. Um, so a little bit of like, a little bit of a fetal akinesia sequence, but a little bit different too. Um, hard to really test that as well, but I've seen that as well. Um, here's one other example uh, that I think um, is very interesting. There is something called ICMIC, I-Q-M-I-K, also called Black Bull. In certain tribes in the western part of Alaska, Yubik, and in the northern part of Alaska, Inupiat or uh, Inu um, or Inuit, either mm-hmm. way. Sure. Uh, the, the there is a, a fungus that grows on the birch tree that is sort of made into a paste and used as ch- like a chewing tobacco. Hmm. It is a halluc- it is a hallucinogen, hmm. and pregnant folks do this all the time, <laughs> and it acts like preeclampsia, and it is incredible. So that's just some of the culture challenges, and to think that you can come in. And go, oh, you shouldn't do that. When they are 30 years old and on their 10th pregnancy and they've been doing it all along, um, uh, that's where I think that, you know, you go into it with a little bit of this idealistic view and you realize that the reality is such that it takes a lot more, um, especially coming from the outside and particularly being a white person, to be honest with you. Yeah. That happened to me as well. When I was in Arizona, I, uh, uh, as a medical student, I worked on an Indian reservation for the San Carlos. Yeah. Um, and this is a little different. Alaska doesn't have reservations. They come from all these little tiny towns. There are no roads in these towns. Unfortunately, there's a lot of um, alcoholism and more drug use because drugs are actually cheaper than alcohol sure. and idleness. Um, uh, and it's, you know, it's a shame. Yeah. Uh, uh, in, in, uh, Ala- in, excuse me, in Arizona, Arizona that's a, I'm sorry, that's, there's a reservation. Yeah. Um, and this was an Apache tribe, and again, the same thing. Yeah, um, conditions that were very common. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that you know I would go in there as a you know as a medical student, you know, twenty five years old. Um, and it took a while to be able to kind of get in and be able to even have a conversation 
some of these folks. They're quiet, but you have to respect them um, and uh, be patient um, and uh, you know respect that culture. So, in a nutshell, <laughs> Alaska was an incredible experience. Um, you know, my wife goes dog sledding in Denali National Park, which I would never do. <laughs> but you no, know, so we hope to go to Alaska uh, regularly. I, my good friend is now still the perinatologist um, um, at the Alaska Native Medical Center because they hired someone permanent now. Yeah. He was the person I was sharing the job with and he moved from Montana. Oh um, my gosh. Well, I can imagine you, a person like you knowing the need that they have up there now. I mean, it's not like yeah. you're going to be able to walk away and forget about it. So. Yeah, it was, it was such a great experience. Just, uh, and like I said, some of the conditions you saw, there was, um, there's something called cholestasis. Granted, it's not an, um, an ultrasound condition. Uh, almost the most cholestasis in the world. We had 200 patients at one time with cholestasis. Within Alaska? Within my Native American wow. population. That's wow. amazing. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah, that is yes. crazy. But I mean, I do, I, that's, I, do you have any international experience with ultrasound? I don't. I would love, I mean, I would love to go work internationally um, it, yeah. uh, at, at some point, maybe in 15 or 20 years. But right now that's sort of on the back burner of time, maybe money. Um, it would be hard for me to be away from my family that yeah. far. Sometimes I have dreams of going to sub-Saharan Africa, sure. particularly like areas like South Sudan, you know, which is the newest country in the world, which is just suffering tremendously, even sure. with base, and they need basic ultrasound help. I mean, they don't have equipment for anything. So, yeah. you know, um, but I, right now, but I have not done anything international right now. That's really cool though. I mean, I just think with technology, it's going to bring, I mean, physicians from all over the world closer together too. So those opportunities I'm sure will spring up as, especially for people like you who are looking to fill a need. Sure. And so. sonographers as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do want to say one thing, I mean, if I could about, you know, you know, about, you know, the, that, what are your thoughts on patient access to miniaturized ultrasound technology? Sure. Um, this is all very well and good for people that have the technology and access and money and all of that. But for example, in my population, which is totally underserved, um, I don't see this having that much of an impact, particularly due to interest, cost, things like that, even language barriers as well, too. Not to say that there's not some motivated people that are very interested in it, but you know they're just trying to survive. And you know, um, a lot of them have lots of other um, psychosocial issues. So having an app like that may be low on the priority list for them. Now, what about on those patients that can afford that? What do you perceive as far as uh, we all know the dangers of uneducated sonographers uh, practicing their own medicine? I mean, I I don't think we're going to be able to impact that. I still have patients that, you know, because they're that the, uh, when I tell them that, you know, they're Fetal anatomical survey looks great. And right now I don't see the need for them to have another ultrasound. <laughs> they're like... And they're horrified. Um, and we're very evidence-based and we just don't do ultrasounds randomly. Um, private, practice may be, private practice may be a, diff, a, a little bit of a different story. And of course, they're not going to be able to pay for their own ultrasound anyway. Um, that they are still going um, to, you know, fetal photo type stuff. And that's going to continue to happen, you know, no matter what. So um, I think that's that's going to be here to stay and it's business generating. And do I get a little bit nervous about that? Sure. You know, I tell them that, you know, they're not going to be able to help you with anything, you know, diagnostically or anything like that. But I don't spend a lot of trying trying to, to tell them not to do it because sure. I think they're going to do it anyway. The more point of care settings, sure. Jane, Absolutely. And I think that's really the key. And I think that... Um, I also lecture to the emergency room residents. Okay. Um, and just even talk to them about how to diagnose, you know, um, a non-viable gestation. And we use the 25-7 rule, you know, your sac is 25 millimeters and you don't see an embryo, it's diagnostic. Or you have a seven millimeter pole and you don't see cardiac activity. That's also diagnostic, those types of things. Sure. And the ability for those types of folks uh, to gain experience with that type of point of care technology is, is a, uh, is, is only going to enhance patient care. So I think that that's still where the role is going to be. I also think that um, as costs come down and technology continues to improve, OBGYN residents may get uh, a little bit more skillful um, during their training. 
um, and being able to do uh, some ultrasounds even at the bedside and triage. So again, in more emergent situations. Sure. And do you ever see physicians being able to travel out to places like your patients had to travel from the, the islands going out to them, being able to have handhelds or telemedicine or, or something, or do you see them continuing to try and bring patients in? No, I would say the former. I, I Even though I don't have experience in seeing that now, I definitely see where, particularly in Alaska, um, uh, that uh, you might teach um, someone with very basic skills, like a healthcare aide. Sure, point of care. Mm-hmm. Point of care, basic stuff. Sure. Um, you know, and I can see that happening um, as a way to at least sort of be an initial screen of, okay, is this patient completely fine or do I need to send her to Anchorage, the, in, you know, the big center for, yeah. for help too? And it's going to be something that may not require that much training. Yeah. So I do see that happening in the future, especially again with the issue of rural health and lack of access like we talked about before. Yeah, absolutely. That's super important. So David, I'm curious of what the years ahead hold for you both personally and professionally. Uh, you know, well, you know, professionally, you know, I hope to continue my interest in education even more. I'm, I'm planning to apply to become a member of the Academy of Medical Educators of UCSF, which is a huge thing, and that's going to be for next year, and potentially be a, a teacher scholar, which cool. is also a, a very big deal. There's only like two or three per year. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking also about that health policy uh, and law master's degree. I'm really uh, interested in racial disparities and health inequities, which is a huge topic right now now, as they pertain to maternal mortality. So I see myself getting more interested in that and getting more educated about it as well. Now, one other thing that I am extremely interested in, and one of my maternal fetal medicine colleagues, I think is going to become the leader in this, is climate change and women's health. This is at the beginning stages, but it gets into many aspects of, uh, without much data, but uh, about reproductive health outcomes, Mm -hmm. you know, various adverse perinatal outcomes, and are they affected by climate change and temperature changes? And not just that, but the effects of climate change, where people are going to be moving to another area because where they live is now flooded. For example, the Maldives are islands in the Indian Ocean off uh, India and Sri Lanka. And they're probably at some point, in my opinion, are going to be completely underwater at some point. Not even that long. Into displacement issues. Correct. So exactly, Jamie. So the displacement issues. And then what does that mean in terms of effects on women's health, fertility, all kinds of stuff. It's a huge field that is just... I think that my friend and colleague is going to be a pioneer and I'm hoping to be a little bit part of it sort of to help him because I think it's going to be a huge field uh, down the road. Personally, I want to uh, resume drum lessons. Cool. I used to take drum lessons. I still am a huge collector of music. My email address is musicmd, as you know. Yes. Um, particularly of shoegaze, which is something from the 90s, which is called dream pop. Um, um, I have a passion for making pickles and jam. Um, my burning man name is Dr. Jam, actually. Yeah, and I have tons of jam already that I make. I get more awesome. out of giving it to people. So I make pickles. Um, I make all kinds of jam, nectarine cardamom and blueberry Earl Grey and all this amazing jam. So. my jam so you guys could jam together. Yes, yeah, so and I make pickles and things too. Those yeah. are some of my favorite. Awesome. Yeah, I'm going to be starting marmalades this year, hopefully, if I can do it. It takes, you know, jamming is fun. That's almost a meditation for me. Like after my family goes to bed, we got, we all kind of go to bed early and wake up early. You know, I usually go to bed like at 9 or 9.30 at night every night. Yeah. But sometimes when I make jam, I'm up until 2 in the morning. And it's just me and the cats and in my little kitchen making jam um slaving away um uh you know and it's i'll be doing it for hours and it's amazing so personally i could do that and uh and and hopefully to to maybe travel a little bit as well too my wife is british we go to england every couple of years or so but we're thinking about going to some other places like iceland and australia out of all the accomplishments that you've had both personally and professional what are you most proud of my son 
my far and away. And he has special needs, so it's been challenging. Um, he's my only child, uh, but he's you know now pretty you know an amazing six feet tall with a beard, eighteen year old, and uh, you know certainly that was um, probably you know my uh, hardest work. And my wife is absolutely incredible. Um, in the twenty three years we've been together, um, Asher, my son's name is Asher, is amazing. Um, I would say after that, you know, just the opportunity to educate folks and having some kind of impact on their learning and that moment when they're like, oh, now I get it, is rewarding uh, and something I'm very proud of. Mm, to be a creator of aha moments. I was just thinking aha moments. Of aha moments. Yes. That's exactly it. Yes. Yeah. That's great. That's a, like that's a thing to strive for. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> what is your legacy that David Abel wants to leave 50 years down the road when we're not here anymore? You know, I am. Um, I gave that gave this question a lot of thought, and I think at first I thought it was going to be kind of a complicated answer, but I really don't think it is. Um, I would like my OBGYN residents to remember me as someone who was a good teacher and who cared about them and their education. Probably number one. Um, I also want patients to remember that I took the time to explain things to them well, educate them, and most importantly, listen to them. Because I think that in this day and age, many patients do not feel listened to or listened to adequately. And I think that even my residents need to learn how to listen better. Um, Physicians are always in a rush thinking about all the things they have to do, but Whenever you have an interaction, and this doesn't just go for, you know, physicians, it's sonographers, it's it's anything almost in life. Even if you have a million things to do and your mind may be a bit preoccupied, the only thing that matters about the current interaction at that moment is that current interaction at that moment. Mm-hmm. That's all that matters. And sometimes I think we lose sight of that. And I want folks to remember me as someone who felt that I was truly listening to them and gave them the time. And I have heard a few times over the last year, you're the first doctor that has ever been willing to spend even 10 minutes with me. And that's, that's a pretty cool legacy to have that. Mindfulness in medicine. I love it. I love it. Again, you're, you're picking the really good phrases. I like it though. That's super honorable. Of all those patients you see, I mean, you know that there's ones that definitely are going to take up, you know, five minutes here, 10 minutes there, your baby looks great, have a good time with your pregnancy and, you know, hopefully things go well. And But there is those ones that are just in devastation and those really, you know, are reeling from questions and just can't wrap their mind about it. Especially in our field, you have to be able to, I'm not going to say I like it, but the challenge of being able to convey bad information is something that I'm not afraid of. And I think that it's patience and time. Like, Mm -hmm. for example, when you tell a a patient um, whose first trimester scan shows that there's no arms and legs, Mm -hmm. most patients go into pregnancy thinking that things are going to be fine. Who really thinks about that there is going to be problems? Most people do not. I'm sure you both know this. When you start saying that, they probably are only processing about 2% of what you say. So what does that mean? That means that you need to have them come back again, like the next day and have another discussion and make the time and squeeze them into your schedule. And I think that's critical, you know, not just to try to get it all done in 20 minutes or 30 minutes and then you're done because this is such a devastating thing. And sometimes it's multiple conversations and patients will appreciate that even when it's a very hard decision and even when it means their baby is not going to live, but they'll remember that. In terms of the, the question about legacy those are the kinds of things that I would want a patients to remember me for. I think that's so great. Very commendable. I'm so glad we got to sit down for this interview. I, from the moment I met you, I was like, oh, we need to get him on the podcast. And oh my gosh, he's in the Pacific Northwest. And then he's down in Fresno and with Joy. And like, oh my gosh. And then I saw your CV and I was like, whoa, he's been mm-hmm. so many more places even than I, than I even knew. I feel like I just kept digging. There's, you're leaving footprints everywhere. So, Dr. Abel, thank you so much for spending your time with us today for sharing your story on the episode and for always being so willing to 
um, not only be as passionate as you are about your practice, but share it with your sonographers and your patients. We really appreciate that. I also want to mention that David is the chairperson of the ultrasound subcommittee that is part of the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine's Education Committee. He's also on the SMFM webinar committee and the MFM mastery committee, which writes questions for continuing education and learning. And he's going to be doing a MFM uh, live webinar for the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine on non-immune hydrops in January of 2020. So if you guys get a chance to listen to that, I would highly recommend it. And he also just did a webinar for Canada on the maternal cardiac disease in pregnancy. So if you get an opportunity to go listen to those, go check them out. Thanks again for joining us for episode 15. Please join us for episode 16, where we sit down with perinatologist Dr. Santosh Pandapati. Dr. Pandapati is doing some amazing work and really lending his voice to an important issue of climate change and how it's affecting women's health on a global scale. So if you happen to be one of those people that cares about women's health or the planet or future generations then I definitely think you'll enjoy this conversation that we get to have with him. Thanks again for joining us on the podcast. And until next time, take care.